answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As far the reading of God's word, let's ask his blessing. Father, with the word open before us, we pray that you would open our hearts and understanding. Your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword you have promised. Then have your way with us by means of your word and spirit, for we need you. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Well, if you do have a Bible, I pray I would ask that you would open up and watch this passage. It's a... Uh, it's, it is finely nuanced. If, if you wondered why you might not have understood everything that was going on there, well, that's what's going on with the Pharisees also. And Jesus knows, and John knew when he was writing this out for us. So what's going on? Um, if you've ever read the uh, Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis, um, then you are blessed. If you haven't, you really ought to. You ought to read the Space Trilogy. In the first book called Out of the Silent Planet... Our Earth, in, that, in this fantasy, is the silent planet. And in that fantasy novel, Earth has been shut out from the rest of the universe, shut out from all the other planets, and the spirits that are over all of the other planets that can communicate to one another. But ours is now silent because its spirit has become bent or evil, corrupting humanity so that all, we all are bent and broken as well on this planet. Well, in the Gospel of John, Jesus proclaims that he is the light of the world. That's the verse that just came right before this passage. In, in chapter uh, 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So Jesus comes and he proclaims that he is something different than all of the world. The world is in darkness and Jesus is light. And when he speaks, the light of life comes forth. He's the light of the world come to a dark and dead place, a bent world and nature where people love 
and live in that dead, dark world. They live in that dead, dark world. They live in that bent world. And they love that bent world. It's their preference. Back in chapter 3, after the famous verse, um, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, we are told in verse 19 and 20, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. They They were in a dark world, and light came, and they don't want it. They don't want the light, because their deeds are evil. John goes on and says, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. That's why the world doesn't come to the light, because the world loves the darkness, its darkness, and hates the light. Jesus has come, it says in verse 23 of chapter 8, Jesus has come from somewhere above our broken world, and we are the people from beneath. Look at verse 23 again. Jesus said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. And he says it a different way. You are of this world, I am not of this world. He's, he's laying out this distinction between himself and all of the rest of the world, which is amazing because it is a world that he created. It's a world that he created, and, and, and he was distinct, of course, as the creator, but he is now something completely different than what this bent and dark world is. Wherever the light and life of Jesus is rejected, the world becomes dark and confused, bent and broken. And so when the light comes and the darkness hates it, or those in the darkness hate it, they actually become more blind, more dark, more bent. Things get worse and worse as um, when, when light is brought forth and those run from the light into the darkness, it's as though they run into darker and darker places because of it. This is the state of our bent world. Jesus promises to have the answer to this. In this passage, Jesus promises to have the answer, but we must come to him in faith to receive the answer and to receive him. So he has the answer to this problem, this problem that he's come to a dark world, he's the light, and no one wants to come to the light. They all run from it. They want to be in the darkness. And Jesus has the answer, but the answer is that you have to come to him. You have to come to him in faith. But you don't want to come to him in faith. And you don't want to acknowledge him. And you don't want to acknowledge that he's the son of the father, the creator of all things. You don't want to acknowledge that. And Jesus says, I have the answer. But you're going to have to come in faith. (laughs) And that's the problem. And that's what's going on in this debate, this, this struggle between Jesus and religious people. Very intelligent religious people. Very well read religious people. People who probably knew the Old Testament in terms of its words better than you or I do. He, he, knows, he, knows these, he knows that they know that word that well. And yet, they're at odds with this light that has come. So, the first section is 13 through 20, and, um, and let's uh, consider that first of all. This, in, in here, we see this stubborn unbelief of the people from beneath, of this people of the bent world. Embarrassing the scribes and Pharisees who wrongly brought a woman allegedly caught in adultery before Jesus, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him in, in uh, the first part of, of chapter 8. Jesus proclaims that he is the light of the world, promising that those who follow him will have the light of life. That's the beginning of chapter 8. 
So they bring to him this woman that they, they say has been caught in adultery. Remember, I told you, these are Pharisees who know the law perfectly, and they completely mess up. And they don't care because their purpose isn't to bring uh, truth to bear. All the, the only reason they're doing this is to try to trick him, try to bring some, uh, some way of accusing him of not being a follower of the law, not being a follower of, Christ, of, of God. And, and so they bring this woman, they, they say that she's been caught in the very act of adultery, and they know that if they bring somebody like that in some kind of a trial, that they have to have witnesses. Jesus says, who, he who has a, is a witness, you can, you can throw the, the first stone because you're going to have to join in the stoning of the adulterers, both the man and the woman, in, in this adultery. Nobody takes him up on it. This is all, so this is all messi- messianic language that's going on when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. When he turns to them as they... <coughs> Many of them walk away, but then he turns to the rest and he says, I'm the light of the world. That's all also messianic language. We saw that as we looked at, at, uh, at verse 12 in detail of the light and the darkness and all that the Old Testament teaches us about that. The Pharisees know all this, and now, now they try to flip the argument on him, which is never a good idea. It's never a good idea to try and out-argue God. That's just a bad idea. Don't recommend it at all. Jesus, so in order to do that, here's what they did. Jesus had called for witnesses to prove the guilt of the woman following the law. Um, and I have the wrong Deuteronomy verses here, I'm sorry. It's Deuteronomy 17 and 19, 15 through 21, actually. You can look at those later. <clears throat> it turned out that there were none willing to come forward. And there was no man caught in the act. This was a sham. This trial was nothing but a sham. And so Jesus refused to enter into it. And Jesus refused to condemn her. Huh, they think. You have to have witnesses, do you? You're claiming to be the light of the world. Well, two can play at that game. And the Pharisees seem to think and charge Jesus with not having valid or true witnesses. This was insincere and hypocritical when compared to the previous scene. They were trying to bring charges, and they knew they didn't have a witness. They didn't have a faithful witness who would come forward. But now they're going to charge Jesus with needing to have a witness. And there had already been this discussion about witnesses to who Jesus was. We've already had this discussion, Jesus would say. John the Baptist had declared him to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And all of Jerusalem and Judea were all coming down to be baptized by John the Baptist. They were following and believing his testimony. John the Baptist was turning them to go follow Christ, and many of them were following him as Messiah. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, um, Nicodemus himself in chapter 3 says, we know that you have come from God because of the works that you've done. There's another testimony right there. And then Jesus also gives testimony to his works um, and the testimony of how the scriptures speak of him all as being witnesses. But he doesn't talk about any of that. He says, he's he's saying, "I, I can bring the witness of myself because of who I am. I know where I have come from and I know where I am going. I'm God. I can declare myself to be the Messiah because I am the Messiah. There's, there's something going on here. So, but he says in verse 14 that if he needed witnesses, he has two. He knows where he has come from and where he is going, verse 14, meaning that he knows that he is God. Not only that, he is the witness of the Father who sent him. Look at verse 16 through 18 again. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I'm not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. 
I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Just a side comment, this is another good couple of verses um, to, to use when, when someone tries to say that um, the Bible doesn't talk about the Trinity of distinct persons of the Godhead. Jesus is saying, there are two men, there are two who can give witness of me. One, myself, and the, my Father who's, who's giving testimony of me. He is acknowledging a distinct personhood between himself and the Father right there. But that's just free extra for you. So this, that's what's going on. Now, so he says, I know, I, I, I am giving testimony. And you would say, no, no, you're supposed to prove that you are the M- Messiah with other evidence. It's like, um, you, you can't say um, about, uh, like a used car salesman uh, who says, you know, he's, he's um, Honest Bill who's, who sells all the cars. And you say, well, how do you know he's honest? Well, it says right there, it's Honest Bill that sells the cars, right? And you'd say, well, no, that's, that's circular reasoning. Well, it is in that kind of thing, but actually, when it comes to ultimate questions, and here's where you have to see this going on, when it comes to ultimate questions, there is, there's going to be circular reasoning. There's going to be what are called presuppositions, and this is because everyone and every worldview has presuppositions. Every ultimate question must be addressed in a circular way. Let me explain. When you're reasoning with an unbeliever, you're reasoning with somebody who is not, like the Pharisees here. Um, when you're reasoning with the un- unbeliever, he will demand that you can't turn to the Bible, you can't turn to a Bible verse to prove the Bible. That's what, that's what the, the unbeliever will say. Any more than Jesus can point to himself to prove that he is God. But the unbeliever will claim to use reason to understand his ultimate questions, his view of the world, his view of truth, who he is, where he is going, etc., And when challenged, well, how do you know that that's true? He will give you reasons for for himself standing on reason as his reason for understanding who he is and where he is going. Everybody comes to this, everybody has to assume certain things about reality in order then to argue from that how you are to understand who you are, where you're going, what is the meaning of this place, those kinds of things. And so you see you're both, you, when you're, pointing, when you're giving the Bible verse to prove the Bible, or when you're turning to the scriptures to prove who Jesus is, you are presupposing certain things. But anyone who's arguing against it is also presupposing certain things. Their ability, for instance, to reason, um, to, to reason and to be able to have their faith in reason um, in order to determine what things are true. Both are assuming ultimate things. Reason can be trusted or the Bible can be trusted. Everyone is at some level a presuppositionalist. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus has in mind as he says, I can give testimony of myself. I can give testimony of self because I am the truth. It says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. Well, the truth doesn't have to prove that, the truth can't prove that it's true. You see that? (laughs) The The truth proves other things to be true or false based upon a standard. That standard is the truth. And Jesus is the truth. That's what, this is what he's trying to avoid. He's trying to avoid placing himself, like putting God on the, on the witness stand. We're going to put you on the witness stand, God. We're going to put you on the witness stand, Jesus. And we're going to ask you a bunch of questions and see if you can prove that you are God. You can prove that you're the ultimate standard. Well, Jesus would say, and by what standard are you going to prove that? Well... Whatever standard is used is going to be an assumed standard by which that judgment is made. 
This is what's going on uh, all the time in this kind of argument, this kind of, uh, of, of sharing of the faith, of testimony and evangelism. The Bible doesn't, you notice this, the Bible doesn't prove, it doesn't try to prove that Jesus is God. It announces and declares that Jesus is God. The Bible proves from the fact that Jesus is God. It proves from the fact that he came in the flesh and that he was crucified and rose from the dead and is now seated at God's right hand. It, it argues from that all kinds of uh, what our obligations are. Therefore, because these things are true, we must, for instance, Peter will say, we must repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or, Paul will argue, having declared that Jesus came in the flesh, humbled himself, having declared that he was buried, having declared that he rose again from the dead, having just declared it. He's not proving it. He's just declaring it. But he says, because that is true, Philippians 2, 9 and 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So that what? That at the, every name of, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Haven't you ever had the opportunity to, you, you've given testimony that Jesus is God. You've given testimony that he's forgiven your sins. You've given, you've answered some questions that they had and you think, I know many times you, you walk away and think I just did a terrible job of witnessing there. But have you ever walked, have you ever thought, I, I, I think I answered the, I think I was really faithful to the word and, you know, I think I, I nailed it. And the person walks off in, in the darkness and, and, and says they, 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 they don't believe, they're unconvinced. Well, this is what's going on. There's something else going on than just the argument, just the argument that is being made. And that's, what, that's what's happening here with Jesus and the Pharisees. So as we, con we continue to see in the gospel, this stubborn heart of unbelief, and, the, and this a stubborn heart of unbelief never runs out of objections. It, th this is different than somebody who has honest questions that, that need to be answered, honest doubts that need to be considered with Bible wide open to help me understand. That's different. Stubborn unbelief is someone who's using questions and objections to keep you and Christ at bay. Oh, yeah, well, what about this? Yeah, and what about that? Um, so, sometimes it's, it's worthwhile when you're having that kind of discussion with somebody to just say, can we just stop for a minute? Look, can, look, can I assume one thing? Can we just assume that I was able to answer all of your questions to, to complete satisfaction? If I was, just assume for a moment, I was able to do that, would you then... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, and, and fall upon him and call him Lord. Well, what about, what about, that, that's usually where it goes then. They, they, they don't want to answer that question. And, and that's the, that is the stubborn unbelief that doesn't want to find Christ, but rather wants to find ways to reject Christ. They're asking questions in order to keep themselves in the darkness because they love the darkness. So, people from beneath will search the scriptures, but refuse to go where they lead. This is the Pharisees. They're searching the scriptures. And in chapter 5 of, uh, of John's gospel, Jesus said to them, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. You're searching the scriptures for eternal life, but you will not follow where they lead. That's like the guy who's asking all the questions. You say, if I answer all of your questions, will you then follow? No, no, no. I'm just going to have a bunch more questions. I'm not interested in an answer. 
I'm interested in barricading myself from the light. That's the state of the world. We don't want to acknowledge what we know to be true. We don't want to acknowledge, in fact, what we know to be true. It, it's not just that they don't, it, it's not like they are completely, or all of us in our, un, in our, in our fallen state, um, don't know anything about God. Romans 1 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So speaking of all people, Paul is saying that they know. They don't know enough to be saved, but they do know enough to condemn themselves. This is not not a problem of intellectual abilities. It is a problem of the heart. We we say that we need to see Jesus face to face, for instance. You know, I would would believe, I believe these things, your friend might say, if I was able to talk to Jesus face to face, right? Well, Peter tells us in his epistle that, um, that while he was able to see Jesus face to face and see him in the transfiguration that took place, He says that we have something as sure, if not more sure, in the written word of God. That's in 2 Peter 1.19. Many saw Jesus. Many saw his miracles. And many of those still refused to believe. Unbelief, at its core, is a heart issue, not an intellectual issue. It is a heart issue, not an intellectual issue. So one application to think about for this, when you are testifying to God's grace, when you're giving your testimony, when you're you're answering people's questions about why you serve some Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world and why he makes any difference in your life at all, and you're giving answers, when you're giving answers, your answers will not be the thing that convinces and um, and regenerates that person. Well, then why do I, why, why bother? Because God says he, that's what he uses. So God will be the one. It'll be God's spirit who will be the one who will deal with the heart. You can't get to the heart. Only God can get to the heart. But God has said in the, in the declaration of his gospel, in your ability to love a neighbor, in your ability in that love to speak the truth, in your ability to patiently continue to walk possibly with that and put up with, in your frustration as you walk away and go, oh, why won't they believe? Or why won't the world believe? Or why, why are our leaders making some of the stupidest decisions when you think about just manifest, easy-to-see truth? Why are they doing this? What you need to understand is we're not going to be able to argue them out of the darkness because they're just going to run deeper and deeper into it. But God deals with the heart. And, and, so, and so Christ knows that as he's speaking here, he's not wasting his time. He, he's not going to finish this argument, this discourse, and walk away and go, what else could I do, Father? That's, that's not what's going on, as, as we'll see here now in this next, the next part of this. Uh, in, in verses 21 through 21, then Jesus begins, and here's what he says. He says, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Martin Luther called this passage a dreadful sermon, an appalling and dreadful word of farewell. But of course, Jesus knows what he's doing, and John knows why he's recording this in the writing of this gospel. 
Also remember just the timing of this gospel. This is the fourth gospel written. It's later, probably in the 50s, something like that. And as it's written at that time, now, now their church is established and, and the gospel is going forth in a lot of, uh, lot of Jewish and Gentile churches. And as it's going forth, the John has, is, there's been a period of time that has gone on. There's been many who have come. There's been many that have rejected. There's, there is a ongoing persecution by the Jews on, of the, on the Christians. And John is writing this, and he's, it's in essence, as he's remembering these words of Jesus, he's speaking to that generation. He's t- speaking to that generation of unbelieving Jews. And he's, and he's saying, don't you remember what Jesus said? I'm going away, and you're not coming with and you're going to die in your sins. This dreadful sermon had particular application for that generation of Jews, for that generation of unbelievers. So, um, think, so let's think about that for a moment. So Jesus knows what he's doing, and John's recording this. Jesus, while fully man, is also fully God. He is not from this bent world. He told the Pharisees that he's going away and they will seek him, but in their system with their demands to make God according to their own system. This is what we all fall into, trying to create God according to our own system. This is where you, this is where you hear somebody say some of the most atrocious words, words like this. Well, I would never serve a God who fill in the blank. Now, you just, you just got to think about that. You, you could fill that in blank with something horrible. But, but what you need to step back and think about when someone says, I would never serve a God who by what standard would you not serve that God? But just by making that statement, who's God in your system? Right? You are putting God on trial and saying, I'm going to determine whether or not I'm going to follow you because I'm God. And I'm going to do that. This is, this is what, and this is what's going on, the Pharisees. They're, they, they're accusing him. They're, they're seeking to accuse and bring him down. They, they search the scriptures, but they have twisted them and twisted their meaning to make a God of their own fashion. And they, are, they have their, their demands. They test and accuse and seek to prove Jesus wrong. They're doing it over and over again. And they're doing it, they say, as a way of pursuing truth. And Jesus says, because that's the way you're trying to pursue truth, you will die in your sins. They misunderstand again, verse 22, they say, um, they say so Jesus, uh, uh, so the Jews said, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come. So they misunderstand again. And Jesus tells them why. And here's where he says again, that I am, uh, where, where he says, as we've looked at, um, I am from above, you are from beneath. You are from this world. I am not from this world. And then verse 24, and I would like you to see this. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In that last phrase, he is not in the Greek. Um, It's appropriate sometimes to put um, that kind of a word in a sentence uh, to understand it the way Greek sentences are are written. But I think it's very clear in this passage, in this context, it really shouldn't be there. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am, they cannot go where he is going. See, there's much nuance going on here. Well, well, it is an eternal truth, for Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's addressing the Pharisees as representative of unbelieving Israel. 
and I am is right before them. That nation in that generation is going to die in its sin, and they will see it when they lift up the Son of Man, in verse 28. He refers to that. We'll look at that in a moment. And all that happens because of lifting up the Son of Man. What would happen because they crucified the Lord? Well, God will hold them in derision, Psalm 2. God will hold them in derision, laugh at them in scorn, and he will call upon them to either kiss the Son or bear the full judgment for having crucified the Savior. That's what happened. That's what happened. And that's what happens to every nation, to every people, to every person who do the same. To deride God only finds you under the derision of God and under his wrath, dying in sins. But here specifically, it's happening in this time and space for that generation. They ask, who do you think you are? And in response to the I am statement, verse 25, Jesus answers again with nuance. He says he's been saying the same thing from the beginning, verse 25. Um, They say, who are you? Jesus says, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. Again, there's a uh, there's a hat tip to, to, to John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. It's a hat tip to, to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. <laughs> it's a hat tip to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Who shall I say sent me, Moses said. You tell them I am has sent you. Okay, so that's, this is what Jesus is doing. To the Pharisees who know the Word so well, they, know, they understand what he's doing, what he's saying, where he's pressing them. They didn't understand that he was speaking to them, though, of the Father, it says in verse 26 and and 27. And I want to connect that to what Jesus said in verse 19, where back again he said, You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But then 26 and 27 says, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. You think you're seeking God? You you think you're seeking the Father? Well, Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. And if they do not believe that he is the way to that destination, they will die in their sins. No one wants to go to heaven who does not want to go to the Father. And no one wants to go to the Father who does not want to believe on Jesus. You cannot say, I want to go to heaven but I don't want to come to Jesus. You can't say, I want to go to heaven, but there's another way. You can't say, there's a, there's, you can't say, I would want to be with God. I want to be with God the Father, but I don't want to be there through the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to be there in, in faith in the, in the one whose blood has been shed for my sins. That is the only propitiation, the only one that's going to make me in a position where I could stand before the Father. But they're lost in their darkness. How would they ever see this then? Well, he tells us in verse 28. Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know, and again, again, then you will know that I am. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. He'll say this very explicitly later on in this chapter when he'll say, before Abraham was, I am. But implicitly, it's already happening in these sentences. And this is the glory of the cross. How do we get people who love the darkness, how do you get people who love the darkness to turn to the light? Jesus says, lift me up on a gibbet. When, I'm, when you lift me up on a gibbet, then you will know who I am. 
When you nail me to that pole, then you will know. And is that not the glory of the cross? This is the glory of the cross, that instrument of violent torture that our women put in, in silver and gold and wear around their necks, like a beautiful piece of ornament. How is that? Is that not the most ironic thing? But it's true. I cling to the cross. I cling to the cross because at the cross, my sins were taken care of, and only at the cross. There's no other way to heaven. And for centuries, the glory of the cross has been turning people out of the darkness into the light, has been turning hearts. Words are spoken, declarations are made, but in those declarations, what is being done is pointing people to see that they put Jesus on the cross. Your sins put Jesus on the cross. Your sins put the Son of God in a place of excruciating terror and pain. And you look and you say yes. And that's the only way I can get rid of these sins. That's the only way I get rid of this re- my rejection of truth, my rejection of the way, my rejection of being, with, being able to be with the Father. In the declaration and preaching of the cross, in the sharing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, God turns hearts. This is what Jesus meant. And so, Jesus is going to the Father, and it's, it's less that he's going to a place as much as he's going to a person. This is the glory. The Pharisees and all men can harden their hearts, but they could not, and we cannot stop what Jesus would do in the hour he determined to do it. He is the great I am, and so no one can master him, no one can thwart his plans. Not then, not today, and not ever. No one could stop what pleased the Father, which was to offer his own son to die for the sins of those who believe. Pilate would write the sign for the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And the Jews would say, take that down, because we don't say that. They could not stop Pilate from doing this. They could not stop Jesus from rising from the grave. No stone would stand in his way. And no amount of scholarly scorn, government persecution, or public indifference will stop the spread of his gospel. This dreadful sermon was used then to bring some to faith. Look at the very next verse, verse 30. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. As he spoke this dreadful sermon, many believed in him. And we'll deal with them uh, the next, in the next passage. Even more, the hard truth of the one from above given to the ones from beneath has and will continue to be used to break stony hearts open blind eyes and deaf ears and bring bring the dead to life in Jesus Christ. He intends to use us, the church, filled with his spirit to continue this in our day. And another example even to believers is this. You're you're wrestling with God about something. Do Do you ever have a sense of saying, I will not serve a God who is doing thus and such? Are you putting him on the dock, as C.S. Lewis says? Are you putting him on trial? Are you going to God with your questions, looking for answers, believing that he has good answers, even if you don't know what they are yet? Because you believe that God is and that he is good, and he is the rewarder of those who seek him. If you go there, if you go to him with your questions, your concerns, with your trials, but you go there with that, God is good. God is. God is good. He's a rewarder of those who seek him. He will give you answers. He will grant you wisdom. 
He will, he will hear your prayers when they're offered up in the faith of Jesus Christ, holding on to him, seeing the cross before you. But if you, but if you let your trials, your tribulations, your difficulties cause you, um, and, and, and by the way, all of this, for all of us, this happens too. We, we, are, we, we begin doubting God. We doubt that God is good. What if, God, what if God really wants terrible things to happen for me and, and it's just for terrible reasons and nothing ever good is going to come from it, right? Anybody ever had that doubt? What if all of this is just meaningless? I'm just grinding through the system, being chewed up and, and spit out. And there's, no, there's no possibility there's anything good. You have that doubt sometimes, don't you? And whenever you have doubts like that, what if, what if it's this bad thing that is actually happening? You need to immediately preach to yourself this. But what if it's all for good? What if it's all for good? What if there is good on the end of all of this, just as there was good on the end of the cross? Because on the end of the cross was resurrection. On the end of the Jews putting Christ to death, along with all the Gentiles, Pilate representing the Gentiles, Herod representing the Jews, putting him to death, the entire world rejecting and putting Jesus to death. What if that terrible thing was just a terrible thing? And Jesus went in the, in, in the grave, and maybe we have some good teaching from him, written, written like, you know, some other great teachers, and that's it. What if that's all it was? Well, what if it wasn't? What if he rose from the dead, and everything was made new, and everything is going to be made new, and all who call upon him are going to be saved, and every tear that has ever been spilt has been, has been carried up by, that, by your Father in heaven because of his love for you. Love that was proven because he sent Jesus to the cross for you. That love is proven. He knows every tear you've ever shed. He knows every hair on your head. He knows everything that has happened to you. What if that's true? And I'm telling you, on the authority of God, on the authority of Jesus Christ, the authority of this word, it is true. And you do not have to doubt it. That's also for you. So don't play games like the Pharisees and, and wander back into the darkness. Turn in the light, look to the cross, and find your solace and comfort, even in the midst of whatever the circumstances you are in right now, your solace, comfort, hope in the one who died for you and rose again and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now, making all things right for you to the glory of his name. Will you believe? Will you let the words of Christ take your heart and believe like that? The people from beneath cannot get to the above. So God sent his son to the beneath to be lifted up for the sins of those beneath so that we might be lifted up with him and then buried with him and then raised with him to be the people of the above. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, you so love the world that you sent your Son here to the people of beneath that we might live in you and with you in the above. We are a different people now, those of us who have looked to the cross. Make us effective ambassadors of the message of the cross and the way of salvation in our lives, in our families, in this church, in our words and deeds. Do this, Lord, to the glory of the name of our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stand and respond. We'll sing number 697, Abide With Me.